Let us then turn to Numbers chapter 28. We're going to look at this whole chapter. And when reading this chapter, you might think it is all about boring Old Testament sacrifices. But with a closer look, friends, the message from this chapter is all about how we can obtain and maintain communion with God. This is what it's about. And remember, he was addressing here the second generation who were about to go into the promised land. And it's a, a gracious move by the living God who is instructing Moses to command the people to perform these sacrifices in order that they might have communion with God. And that's really uh, the title I want to give to the meditation this evening, Communion with God. And that is my first heading, Communion with God, because what I want to do is to impress upon us that this is the universal desire of every individual, communion with God. That should not surprise us. If we go back to the very beginning, Adam and Eve had a wonderful relationship with God. It was pure. It was holy. There was communion. There was fellowship between the Creator and the creature. We know, of course, what happened. Sin entered in and everything changed. But really, this is one of the main themes of the Bible. It is how that communion can be restored. And that's really what you'll find as you go through the Bible. It is surely God working away, whereby his just demands can be met, his attributes can be honored, and also that through Christ, men and women and boys and girls might know real communion with God. And therefore, it is true to say that communion with God is what every one of us longs after. Now I know there are multitudes of unbelievers and they are they can be regarded as irreligious. They're never in the house of God. They they blaspheme against God and they live a life as if God doesn't exist. But nevertheless, this is what they are searching for. They don't know it. They can't articulate it. But in all their activities, they are searching for something. We know what it is, ultimately, because we're made in the image of God, and we're made to have a, a relationship with God. But that God part of us, if you like, that vacuum that we find in our lives, they try to fill in other ways. But we know that Whatever they do, it will never, ever satisfy them. We have a part in us 
that only God can satisfy. And this surely is what the Bible, Christianity, the work of Christ is ultimately all about, to restore that relationship so, so that all of us could have communion and fellowship with our great God. Therefore, it should not surprise us that this is the thing that everyone is ultimately after and will never be satisfied until they experience communion with God. And in this chapter, what do we find? We find how the Israelites, how they can have communion or fellowship with God as they begin to go into the promised land. God was being gracious to them. He was revealing what is required of them in order that they might have this communion with God. I would put it to you, although it's not my text, but I would put it to you that verse 2 is a critical text. Command the children of Israel and say unto them, My offering and my bread for my sacrifices made by fire for a sweet savour unto me shall ye observe to offer unto me in their due season. And then he goes on to list all that's required of them. And we will look at this later on. But the thing we want to note here is, this is a sweet savour unto me. This is something that God delights in. And you will notice that term, sweet savour. It goes through this chapter. You can look at it later. I'll highlight it to you. Verses 6, 8, 13, 24, and 27 all use this term, sweet savour unto me. And what is God conveying here? He is conveying to the people that in a very real way, he wants to have fellowship and communion around a meal, as it were, with his people. He is keen to have fellowship with his people. And because he wants to have communion with us, and communion with the people of God some thousands of years ago, he has given them directions. How that fellowship may be obtained and how it can continue. This is what it's all about. And therefore, remember, friends, that we are ones who need communion with God. Let's just look very briefly at the, at the sacrifices. Verses 3 to 8, there was two lambs of the first year were to be offered, along with their, their drink and their grain offerings, one in the morning, one in the evening. Verses 9 to 10, we'd come to the Sabbath. Two lambs in the morning, and two lambs in the evening. You can see the offerings have gone up. Verses 11 to 15, the first day of every month, the new moon, again, more offerings, and more was required. Then we come to the, the festival sacrifices, the first of them, the Passover, verses 16 to 25, this would happen in around our March and April. We know about the Passover. It reminds the people that they were taken out of Egypt 
when the angel of death passed over their houses where the blood was sprinkled on the lintel. And that we find there in verses 16 to 25. And then from verses 26 to 31, we have the first fruits festival. It's also called in other places Pentecost. It was principally a harvest thanksgiving. And sometimes it was called the festival of, of weeks. And that would happen in our May and June time. So thinking about this communion with God, the first thing then that we are to realize that this communion with God was by the way that he alone had prescribed. They couldn't in any way devise another way. It had to be this way. God was the one who initiated it. God was the one who wanted it. And if they were to enjoy communion with God, it had to be the way that he had prescribed. There was no room for change. There was no room for their opinion. This was the way. God had laid it down clearly for them. There was to be no dispute. There was to be no debate. He took the initiative. And if they were to enjoy communion with him, then they would have to perform or carry out these sacrifices just as they were laid down here as we read. We said that there is a great desire in the natural man for fellowship and communion with God, although he might not recognize it and he's not able to articulate it. We recognize that. You can see it. You can see it in the plethora of religions. We don't know how many religions there are, but the number is growing daily. What does that tell us? It, tell us, it tells us that man is a religious individual. He is looking for the supernatural. But very often, he's just not looking in the right direction. And very often, what are they doing? They're worshipping a God of their own imagination. And they're worshipping a God that will suit them and their requirements and their likes. And they will not worship the one true and the living God. As one commentator said, what they want from God is communion without commitment and relationship without responsibility. You see, the God of the Bible is not their number one choice. It's not the God they want. So they look elsewhere. But the Israelites, they couldn't. If they were going to have fellowship with God, it had to be on God's terms and on God's terms alone. We see in mankind this desire for communion with God and how they fall, fall far short of it in the ways that they seek it. We also see it, the same kind of idea, in the realm of human relationships. What do I mean? Well, there are many people who would like to have relationships with the opposite sex. But 
they will not avail themselves of the ordinance of marriage. They think, well, if they keep up with someone, that's the same as marriage. But of course it's not. It's not the same at all because marriage is a contract. Marriage is a public declaration of a commitment between two individuals, two persons. In the, the living together, they don't have that. And because they don't avail themselves of the ordinance that God has given, they don't enjoy the blessings. They don't enjoy the privileges. They don't want the commitment. And that is the way with many people regarding the worship of the one true and living God. They will not undergo or undertake or observe the commitment that's, that's required to worship God according to the way that he has prescribed. Well, the second thing I would like to notice here is Communion with God is costly. It is costly. Someone has calculated, I haven't done this personally myself, I'm relying on someone else, but someone has calculated, taking into account Numbers 29, which many people will put together. But if you take in these two chapters, which both deal with all the sacrifices that God requires, you will see that to serve God in the way that he has prescribed is costly. 1,093 lambs per year. 37 rams per year. 113 bulls per year. And 30 goats per year were sacrificed by the people. And that does not include uh, the grain and the drink offerings. And that does not include the other offerings, like the free will offerings or the sin offerings or the fellowship offerings that they would also have to uh, subscribe to during the year. So it was very, very costly to have communion with God. It was not cheap. But it would remind us that as they were going into the promised land and God required this sacrifices from them, that God in his great grace would supply what he himself had prescribed. This was to be a great encouragement to them. They were going to go into this land and God was going to provide. They were going to have faith and God would ultimately give them the sacrifices that he himself are demanded. But there's a lesson for us here, friends, because we're not here sacrificing animals. But communion with God is costly. What do we mean? Well, you just have to look at your Bibles, and you will find that true-hearted believers had to pay a cost for their communion and fellowship with God and their discipleship. You could think of all the Old Testament characters. You could think all of them. They all had to pay a price for their, for their faith in the one true and the living God. You could think of David. His 10 years of 
living like a fugitive because he was the anointed of the Lord. You could think of other Old Testament characters. You could think of Daniel being thrown into the lion's den. You could think of his associates cast into the burning furnace. They wouldn't compromise. To them, communion with God meant everything, and they were prepared to lose their lives. On this occasion, God spared them, but others were not spared. You could think of the New Testament believers. You could think of John the Baptist. Did he not pay the ultimate price for communion with God? What about the first martyr? What about Stephen, stoned to death? He had communion with God. It cost him his life. We're inclined to believe, as tradition would teach us, that most of the apostles lost their lives. Why? Because they believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. They believed upon the reality of his resurrection, and they were prepared to proclaim the gospel. And as a result, they paid the ultimate price. The early Christians, were they not thrown to the lions? Communion with God is costly. And to some people, the cost is too great. Last Lord's Day evening, did we not meditate upon the rich young ruler? What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to be saved? What must I do? Jesus said. What did he say to him? Sell your goods. Give to the poor. Come, follow me. What did he say? It was too high a cost. He wasn't prepared. And the cost is very often too costly for some. And it keeps them away from becoming disciples. They seek, but when the, the cost is revealed to them, they don't become disciples. Why? Because communion with God is costly. But if communion with God is costly for the worshiper, It was also extremely costly for the animal being offered. All these animals that were offered there, they give their lives. They had to die. In order that the worshiper might be accepted in the sight of God, something had to happen. The animal had to lose his life. Why? Because... The price of sin is death. And sin always has a price. One commentator gave a very good illustration, a modern illustration that I'm sure we'll all be able to understand. You're driving your car. An uninsured driver, he drives into you. Your car's wrecked. You come out of the car. He comes out of his car. He says, I'm sorry. So what? It doesn't pay for your car. You might say to him, I forgive you. So what? 
It doesn't pay for your car. Someone has to pay. So it is with sin. There's a cost with it. Sin does not simply go away. It has to be paid. And either the worshiper will pay, pay the price for sin, his death, or the animal will pay the price for sin, which is death. This surely reminds us of the immense cost of salvation, of the Christian salvation. Surely this reminds us again of the immense sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, him coming from heaven, his condescension, the humiliation in all of his life, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, came to this world not just to teach us, not just to proclaim the gospel or to proclaim God's word to us, and not to set an example, but ultimately to die. That's what was required. And none of us could possibly be saved unless Jesus Christ had come and suffered in room in our stead and ultimately give up his life and died as a substitute. Communion with God is costly. And communion with God for the Christian required and necessitated the the death of the Son of God. It's no light matter. It reveals indeed the great love of God and the love of the Savior that he came and undertook all that was required as we have been reminded in recent days. Well, thirdly, and briefly, we want to notice, we have here in these verses a pattern for communion. Communion with God. Communion with God is costly. And we have here somewhat of a pattern. If we can cast our minds back to chapters 1 and 4, 1 to 4 of Numbers, there we had the Lord giving space to the believers. He was assigning their space in the camp. Now, if you like, he is working out the time space of the believers. He is outlining worship and sacrifices. He goes from daily to weekly, to the month, and to the special festival sacrifices. And this would remind us that all of our lives are to be lives of sacrifice to the Lord. Daily. What do we find here? Every day, in the morning, a lamb had to be slain, and in the evening, another lamb had to be slain. 
does this not then tell us that when we get up in the morning, what should we do? Should we not seek to have communion with God in the morning? Now, it may well be difficult for us regarding our circumstances. Everyone is not the same. Some people have more time than others. Some people's lives are more organized than other people's lives. But you know yourself what it's like. If you get up in the morning and you rush about doing whatever you have to do, and you're out the door, and you're away to work, God is not in your thoughts. Whereas if you even had a few moments when you may call upon him in prayer, maybe read a word of God, a part of the word of God, that in some sense can set you up for the day. When you retire at night, you can thank God for the day you've had. You could ask him to grant you peace and rest for the for the night that's before you. And we do need to remind ourselves that God gives his beloved sleep. The point is that the Israelites, they would have seen the lamb go off to the temple to be slaughtered, to be sacrificed in the morning, the same in the evening, in order that they might have communion with God. The Sabbath day came and there was two lambs in the morning and two lambs at night. Marking out the Sabbath day is a special day. It's exactly the same for ourselves. Our Sabbath day is a special day. We remember the life and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We remember the coming of the Holy Spirit. Sadly, sometimes we can forget to gather together. Some have forgotten the blessing. What does Hebrews tell us? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We all have our daily things that we have to do day by day. We're ours to remember the Lord morning and evening. But the Sabbath day is a day when we come together, and we are to encourage one another. We are to provoke one another. And if we're not together, then we cannot do that. Another thing that you notice about the sacrifices as they go on through the year, you can look at this later on, but you will notice that what's required, the offerings get bigger and bigger as we go through the year. Reminding us again that fellowship with God is costly. And one commentator maintained that this is a pattern of our lives. As we get older, and as we are getting nearer glory and nearer eternity, we are, in some sense, increasing our sacrifices, increasing our dedication. He cited this chapter and this verse in uh, 
Romans chapter 12, verse 1, as evidence for this. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And the thought behind that there is the burnt offering. And the burnt offering is one of complete consecration and sacrifice, giving up everything. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. You will see, as you look at it, that the sacrifices increase as it goes through the year. And then, of course, we come to the festal sacrifices, the Passover and such like. This is the way, then, to maintain our communion with God. This is the way to obtain it. It is through, ultimately, what Jesus Christ has done, and to value and to appreciate him. He is the one that we look to. He's the one who has done all that's required. And the way for us to have communion and to maintain communion is to look unto the Lord Jesus Christ to have communion with God. Amen. And may the Lord bless his word to us. Let us pray together.